Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Tom Murphy. Tom, how are you? Doing fine, thank you. And I believe this is our fourth time recording together, our first time in a while. It's been a few years. And glad to have you back. And so for listeners here, I'm going to introduce him a little bit and why he's back after so long. So I've long described his blog, Do the Math, as one of the most important on the web. I've actually told people, read yours before listening to mine or reading mine. And there's another big one, Low Tech Magazine. I think I've talked to you about it, but I really love that one as well. Right. And all the readers of his blog of Do the Math know that he disappeared for years. And then suddenly out of the blue, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, your first post in a long time, that you'd compiled a bunch of your posts into a, a book that served partly as a textbook for a course that you taught. And there are several books on the environment that I think are incredibly important that have come out over the years that quantitatively look at things. One of them is Limits to Growth, uh, which I read the 30-year update in 2002. And then the Sustainability Without the Hot Air out of, was it Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge, I believe. Cambridge, yeah. And this is one of those books. It, there's going to be a before and after this book, I believe, that I don't know how, how broad an effect it will make on the rest of the world, but it compiles everything together, not everything, but a lot of things together on energy. I mean, the title is Energy and Human Ambitions on a Finite Planet. And, you know, there's an answer. What happened? You know, does ethanol work? It's not just a hunch. You know, we can look at the numbers. We can look at not just the data from measuring things, but also what's the physics underneath? What's going on? The book has a fair amount of math in it. And mathematics is a language of nature. This book has a lot of the language of nature. And I've been describing it to people by showing a video of this conductor, Ben Zander, who I was just telling Tom about him before we hit record, where I'm, I'm going to put a link to this video and watch it because you'll love this video. It's a, a very enjoyable video of him doing a masterclass, uh, Ben Zander, with a cello player on Bach cello pieces. And you'll see there are times when he is talking to the guy in English. And at times he says, well, here's what I mean. And he starts playing the piano because music is a language of music and you can't communicate music without playing music. And you can't communicate nature without math. Now that said, I think you can read this with kind of skimming over the math parts if you want and kind of just glossing over them the first pass. And then probably going back a second or third time will probably help. But there's a lot of stuff, you know, and he also makes it clear and I'll bring Tom on it. You're going to talk more in a second, but that the numbers tell you the patterns. They tell you what's going on, but they don't make choices for you. They don't tell you good, bad, right, or wrong. Ultimately, we have our values. And the point of the math isn't the math. I believe it ultimately informs our values and how to act by our values. It doesn't give us the answers, math, but we have to think and knowing what's going on clarifies how to think about these things. So do electric vehicles help? What works between fusion, fission, wave power, solar? The, and why? What are the limitations? These are what you cannot answer meaningfully without knowing the math, without knowing what this book gives. And I'm not aware of any other book that so comprehensively covers so many different things. And I've just loved reading. And on a, as a personal note, for someone for whom the math is, is, you know, I have a PhD in physics, so it's not too challenging for me, the math part. The thinking part, yes, but that's the kind of thinking I want to have. So as a physicist, I really enjoyed reading this. The way that you'll feel when you watch Ben Zander, if you're not a math person, you'll probably really enjoy the Zander stuff. And that's how I felt reading this book. It was like, oh, now it all makes sense. Like this, now he's putting it together in a way that I can compare these things. So that was my long introduction to what, why I couldn't wait to bring you back, why all the readers of your blog are clearly overjoyed at having you back. And um, 
I want to hear backgrounds for the book and maybe you can describe the book and how you decided to put it together and things like that. Sure. Well, it, it's true that I, I had a very long hiatus. I, I got, I started the blog in 2011 and this is after, you know, about seven years of processing this challenge that we're facing or a set of challenges. Uh, it's really a predicament. And as I, as I looked at different avenues and what energy sources we might use, I really basically became more confused because it's a complicated story. There are no silver bullet answers. And I started writing about it for the blog, Do the Math, in 2011. And it was very cathartic. It was very nice to finally get that stuff out, express my, my thoughts and convey the, the math. And also it forced me to do new calculations because I, I had a readership and they wanted to understand, uh, as I did, some of these things. And I hadn't calculated a number of the, the issues before. And, and so, but once you've done that, once you've calculated how much wind energy we can get or how important wave energy can be or any of these things, it's done. And, and so there wasn't sort of a natural continuance to the blog because I basically said it all and the physics doesn't change and the math doesn't change. And so it went kind of stagnant. But in 2020, in the winter of 2020, I taught a course on energy and the environment that I had not taught in seven years at UC San Diego. And that long hiatus was mostly due to an administrative role that I served for about five years that was so busy that, you know, I really couldn't, didn't have the bandwidth to do that course. So when I returned to the course, I had always been disappointed in the textbook choices because they were fairly dry and fairly anodyne and didn't really, they didn't really mix the math and the sort of physics with the values and the human side of this problem. And they also stayed away from maybe controversial statements or statements that would get, you know, anybody's uh, hackles up. And so I thought that that's not terribly helpful. We need, you know, the students need to see some synthesis and they need to see some interpretation beyond just the, just the facts. And so the other thing, I guess, about the book is that I've wrapped it into a broader picture. The, the central part of the book is really about energy sources, but it starts talking about growth and how growth and exponential behaviors are not sustainable. And a lot of our assumptions then are, are thrown out the window. So the beginning of the book basically says, look, we can't keep continuing what we're doing. It's just absurd. The math leads to crazy places and we can't go there. Uh, nature won't allow it. So then we talk about energy and you know climate change is thrown in as not a central focus, but just one of the, the many things we have to, to deal with as a consequence of our, our trajectory. But then the end does something I think that you're unlikely to find in any of these kinds of books, which is it talks about the human factors, the role that personality plays, the role that political structures play, democracies. And some of the impediments that we basically put up for ourselves that really make it hard to deal with this, this challenge and how difficult it is to, to converge on a plan and how, how um, important it would be to have a plan and not just go, not wing it. We can't, 
we can't expect winging it to succeed as we face the challenges ahead. And finally, I wrap up with um, kind of a, a guideline, a set of guidelines for how to assess your own contributions to this energy predicament. Mostly it's focused on energy, but resources in general. And what kinds of, and it doesn't really advise specific actions as much as how to get a handle on your impact. And then you can design your own adventure. Once you can assess how much of an impact each thing is having, you can look at your own life, figure out where where the sort of pain points are and and address them. So I thought, you know, compared to other textbooks, this this is the story that I wanted to tell. It's the class I wanted to teach. And so I, I kind of wrote it real time starting in maybe November 2019 before the class started. And by the end of the class, I was just barely ahead of the students and giving them one PDF chapter at a time, not very fancy. And I spent the the rest of the, the year basically polishing that up and making it look better, margin notes and better figures. But importantly, and I know I've, I've spoken for a long time already, but this last bit, one of the assignments I gave the students or you know, one of the types of assignments I gave the students every week was after reading a chapter, provide feedback on that chapter. And it's substantive feedback in terms of what is missing. What did you hope this chapter would cover? And it just didn't go there. What figures and tables might you recommend to sort of assist your understanding of the material? What do you find confusing or what do you think other students might find confusing? Anything that you think is wrong or suspect or or such, I had them review the problems. And so I ended up with about 2,600 tickets, if you will, from the students of things that I can improve. And I took them all very seriously and asked myself, what can I do to prevent this same ticket from coming up on a second pass? And that, I think, made the book far more not only useful, but also broad because, you know, I've got a class full of all kinds of personalities and backgrounds. And if I can satisfy, these are non-science majors by and large. And if I can basically satisfy that crowd, I think I've sort of done the job and, and can have a, a textbook that almost anybody can can uh, get something out of. You started by mentioning the dryness of other textbooks. And you mentioned they didn't bring it all together and they wouldn't treat certain subjects. It also occurred to me just now listening to you that it didn't occur to me while I was reading it, but it's clear there that you care about, everyone cares about teaching, but you're not just trying to teach people some stuff about the environment. I mean, you also do, you talk about your own getting a kilowatt and this device that measures how much power is going into something and, and getting an electric vehicle long before most others did, and not just getting it, but measuring it and seeing and changing your behavior as a result of that, that transcends to me a mere science textbook. I mean, this is a labor of love, is it not? Yeah. And I want the reader to also live it, not read it, but live it and understand it viscerally and and very personally. And that's right. I think as an educator, I have this compulsion to really get people to understand things. And I sort of believe that if it can't be explained, if I can't explain it well, I don't understand it. And none of this is beyond the grasp of the students I'm trying to reach or the readership I'm trying to reach. 
And I, I try to be a guide basically to their own thinking. And I guess as an educator also, I've thought a lot about what thinking and learning really is. And at the end of the day, sometimes I, I go into a class and I ask a question, especially if, if we're covering the topic of teaching. I've taught some courses on how to be a good, effective teacher, for instance. And one thing I ask, and often these are a bunch of physics students uh, in the classroom. And so I ask them, what physically happens when somebody learns? What happens in the universe? How is the universe different after learning? Students walk into a classroom you know, something transpires in the one hour in the classroom when they walk out, what physically has changed? And they struggle with this. And I don't want to, I don't want to give it away and, and offer too many hints, but eventually somebody will say neurons are restructured and new neural connections are made inside the student's head. And bingo, that's exactly what's happening. So at some level, an educator is a, is a brain surgeon, you know, mm-hmm. you're rearranging stuff inside somebody's brain and you can't, literally just get in there and rearrange things, even if you knew how you were supposed to to do that, the student really has to do it themselves. And so real learning requires real thinking and it's, it's work. It, It takes work on the part of the student, but if you can sort of guide them and let them step by step kind of process those things on their own, then it becomes a permanent part of their, their mental structure. So that's part of what I try to do in the book, but it's, it's a hard task. Think of it this way. I'm trying to build neural structures in people's heads through this blunt instrument of words in a series. How can that, you know, be guaranteed to work? That is a really difficult thing to do, but that's what I'm trying to do. You mentioned students and readers, and if someone just looked at it, they might think, okay, this is a textbook, but it's not, I, I don't believe that you wrote it just as a textbook. I think that was like your prompt. Well, that didn't start your, your blog wasn't that. That's correct. I think that was your that was what coalesced it into a book. Who did you write this for and what effect on the world would you like to have? Yeah, I wrote it for many different people. And I think that is one of the challenges when writing is to try to consider who the audience is. And for me, it was not a simple answer. It's it's everybody at some level. I mm-hmm. I really think this is the kind of kind of perspective that we could use in most people walking the planet today. Just this awareness that the trajectory we're on is really whacked, that it's not according to some plan. It's just been allowed to happen. It's not long-term sustainable. And I came across as I was conceptualizing this this, um, message as I wrote the book, this way to think about it, that we were all born during a fireworks show. This last few hundred years is this amazing demonstration of the power that humans have acquired, mostly through fossil fuels. And we've been really exploiting the resources of this planet literally as fast as humanly possible. We've, we've tried to remove any barriers to exploitation of resources, um, mm-hmm. markets and economies and political structures are basically elegantly designed to maximize the rate at which we can give people stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a very unusual time in history. And like a fireworks show, it's going to end. And if you're born during the fireworks show, as all of us have been, it's really hard to see that as abnormal 
almost by definition to us. It is normal. And the trajectory, we simply extrapolate and imagine that tomorrow is always bigger than today. And it's really just wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. And how do you get, you know, imagine if we had a planet crawling with people who actually understood that. It would radically change the way that we behave, the decisions that we make, the priority that we give to nature, the health of ecosystems. It's radical, but it's, it's quite necessary. So I, I really wrote it for basically any, anyone who walks the planet. Uh, I think it's that important. You've gone through that transition. I mean, it sounds like you were before you kind of knew, before you brought everything together, you knew how every bit worked, but I don't think you put it all together until you started incorporating it in your life. I mean, you're talking about the, the change that you're talking about. I think you've lived. I feel I have. Yeah, I definitely have altered a lot of my behaviors. And it, it pains me that I'm still not living in a way that is truly sustainable because I'm part of a society that's deeply rooted in unsustainable practices. And unless I'm a hermit, I can't really separate from that. We need to bring the community with us. We need to uh, encourage transitions in large populations. We can't do it alone. And in fact, I think you and I have talked before about the value of, or or the even detriment of being too extreme. You know, I, I think of it like, let's say you're going on a hike with a group you know, a few dozen people, and you're trying to get them to some campsite by, you know, dusk, maybe you're in great shape, and you can get there with three hours to spare, and you've dashed ahead, and you're over the horizon, and nobody even sees you, you're not going to encourage the group to follow you by being amazing (laughs) at getting out there uh, in front. You need to stay within sight, you need to sort of be there to, to sort of pull them along. And so I guess that's the way I kind of maybe rationalize not being too extreme, but at least, you know, I've, I've shaved the energy consumption in my life by a factor of four or five since I became aware of, of the challenges. That's, that's pretty substantial, but I don't, I don't need to, you know, maybe I'm at 20% or 25% of what I used to use. I don't need to be down at 1% even if that might be a laudable eventual goal, I don't know that it, it, it really um, helps in the moment. But I do think that the main thing I've tried to do in the, in the book, for instance, is provide tools so that people can do their own assessment. That's how it worked for me. I started measuring, I started assessing, and gave myself basically a, a personal challenge. And that's, as you know, very rewarding to, to, to do it yourself this way. You said how much you changed quantitatively 25%, 20% of what you did before. How about the personal experience, the subjective experience of it? Are you taking one for the team and, and, and sacrificing? Is this a strain on your marriage? There's some of that, but it's, it's easily balanced by the rewards. I think by designing your own adventure, it, it does become personal and there's satisfaction in achieving those goals. There are elements of it that might seem like sacrifice to somebody who hasn't experienced it for themselves. But if you also feel that as a result, you are living as a part of this planet in a way that's you know, responsible, you know, what is it? The, the millennials talk about adulting and they're very proud when they do something like write a check. Well, it, mm-hmm. it's kind of like that. You feel some 
satisfaction that you're doing something that is bigger than yourself. It's not just about your own comfort or your own selfish needs. It it's about really almost the, the biggest things that we can imagine life on this planet and thriving, a thriving biosphere and, you know, a thriving civilization because the, the honest truth is if we don't pay attention to the health of this planet and the health of nature and ecosystems, it is our life support machine. We are basically chewing on the cord of the life, the power cord to the life support machine. Mm-hmm. And we're really good at it. We've learned to do it really well and we enjoy chewing on that cord, but it's to our ultimate detriment. And so I want to preserve one of the things I really care about is science and knowledge and all that we've learned about the universe and and how the world works and um, how our ecosystems work. All of that is really precious. And we are at risk of flushing it down the toilet if we sort of allow ourselves to go down and kind of a chaotic catastrophe, which we're perfectly capable of doing. So I'm trying to preserve those really big things or do my part to preserve those really big things. And so putting on a sweater in winter instead of heating up the house feels like a pretty good bargain. If Mm -hmm. that means that we can keep science, you know, I'm down with that. Now, I forgot to mention something earlier. I'm going to give a little Easter egg sort of thing. When you mentioned the fireworks before. So when you read his book, you'll find he refers to a specific example of a fireworks display that I went and looked up online. It was a delight to watch it. I was like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> so I'll let, I'll let readers find that. And you'll, you'll really enjoy it when you find it, because if you haven't heard about it, it's, it's crazy. I can't remember the last time I laughed so hard. I kicked myself that I was in the area and we did watch a fireworks show, but not that particular one. Uh, and I only heard about it the next day. And when I looked at the video, I mean, I, I can't, like I say, I can't remember the last time I laughed so hard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's really amazing. There are a few nuggets in the book where you're just like, that's really funny. That's really clever. It, oh, and also when you talked about, you can't be too extreme about someone, if you're leading a group from one place to another, and if you get too far ahead, then you, you might lose them. And I, one of the things that has been important for me is, because a lot of people look at me and they're like, oh, you're so extreme. Now, to me, I think I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So to say, it feels to me like they're saying, you're having an extreme amount of fun. I'm like, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. That, but I know that from their perspective, it looks like extreme sacrifice. But I've also learned to separate that there's where I am and what I'm doing. That also, I want to be able to go at whatever pace I can. I want to reach, I want to know my potential. That's not necessarily what I'll do with others. So leading them, like I want to train myself to reach my potential. Mm-hmm. And then I have to separate that from how I lead people, which is a different thing. So when I'm actually with them, I might let them know what I've done so that I've, so they know where it's coming from experience, not uh, guesswork. But I have to also learn techniques of what, how do I lead people effectively? Right. I'm also thinking, there's a lot of things I'm, I'm wanting to ask about. There's a lot of people who, really understand science well. I mean, I chose to go into science because it, I'm deeply passionate about it. I really love the patterns and so forth. And there's a thought that I have a lot that if someone knows science today in 2021, I won't begrudge anyone who just loves the field and just wants to research and publish. Great. It's beautiful. And I have no qualms about that, but I can't think of anything like this is what to work on. 
This is to help people who don't get the first to understand it in the way that you have, not just as a dry academic pursuit, but also how do we connect our current environmental situation and our current lifestyles with each other and to our own personal lifestyles. I don't see a lot of scientists approaching it in that way. They're studying to promote results, but not to influence, to to help make it meaningful. I think a lot of scientists aren't really good at that, but I wonder, is it easier to get people who are effective at communication, not just science communication, but influence and persuasion to get them to learn the science or to get scientists to learn how to not just research, but also make it more meaningful. But I feel like if if someone in science today, like this is the place to put it. I I feel like you had something of that message in there. Yeah. And I think one of the things I learned in writing the Do the Math blog is that I, I did a survey once of personality types of people coming to the site and learn using the Myers-Briggs as, a, as, as the basis. And I learned that my writing is very attractive to my own personality type. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's sort of overwhelming that I think like 45% roughly of the visitors to my site were the one of, you know, there's 16 personality types and 45% of them were my type. And my type is only maybe 2% of the population. So wildly distorted. 20 times overrepresented. Yeah, just way overrepresented. And the other two types that were frequent visitors were basically adjacent, just you know, off by a, a tiny bit from my own personality type. So one thing I learned is that you know, communication styles, it, it's really hard for one communication style to reach a really truly broad audience. And so at some level, what you kind of need is a bunch of individuals of different types who get the you know, they, they understand, they've, they've internalized the, the problem and, and are more capable of communicating that message to people of their own type. So I think you come back to your question, you kind of need both. You need scientists to understand communication uh, better and understand how to reach uh, broader audiences. And you need people who really know how to reach people and communicate. You need them to be able to internalize the message. So. And I don't think either is impossible. I think clearly, you know, we need work on both fronts. I want to switch to talk about some of the content of the book too. I probably want to ask if there's, because there's two stages of it. There's the, a lot of it is in your blog from before. And I kind of, well, I'll ask this. Were there any big surprises or anything that you didn't expect to come out the way that it did? It's hard not to think of, sorry, to like the energy trap, the most important graph of all time. These things seem now just a part of my lexicon not the words, but the, those concepts. But right. did you know that? I think you were surprised by them or? So definitely in writing the original content for the blog, I came across surprises. Until I had done the numbers, I didn't know what to expect. And definitely I got some, some, uh, some weight, you know, forehead slapping wake up moments there. But, you know, there's one chapter in the book, chapter 17, that's the matrix that compares all of the different energy forms in one, in one table. And that, when I first synthesized it, was uh, really important to me. And one of the main things it shows is the gap between alternative energies and fossil fuels and all the attributes that we care about. So that it's it's not just a drop-in replacement for, for fossil fuels. The alternatives are not. We, we are going to have trouble bridging that, that gap and, and adopting a new, new energy technology. So, but... You know, some of the graphs that I produced for this textbook that I'd never done before surprised me. And one of those, for instance, was 
plotting the fraction of various energy forms that the U.S. used throughout history, the fraction of the global, say, natural gas or oil or, or coal used by the U.S. And in the mid-20th uh, century, around 1950, when the graph starts, the U.S. was far and away the most dominant energy user in the world. I'm not talking about per capita. I'm talking about absolute terms. You know, having 5% of the world's population, we were using, you know, 70 or so percent of the natural gas. It's, it's insane. And one of the perspectives that that uh, leads to is that we'll, we were literally a superpower because power in physics is defined as energy per time. And so we were the most powerful, as measured in watts, nation. And that has consequences. That translates to our role in the world stage and so forth. So the term superpower now, I'll never look at in the same way. It also makes it clear that for those who yearn to return to those kind of what we might think of the glory days, uh, you know, not for everybody, obviously, but, you know, the middle class was thriving. We had a lot of momentum and and, uh, excitement in the country. People would like to see that return. But this plot sort of makes it clear that It's not just about our attitudes or our political structures or decisions that we might make. There is a physical basis to that time, and it was energy. It was profligate use of energy. And so nature says we're not going back to that in terms of, you know, the fossil fuels are not going to return us to that time. So that's a really, I think, powerful realization that we're not just driving this ship based on our whims it's it's a ship that needs energy and we can't just do whatever we want with the ship it needs needs physical resources to make it work yeah i think one of the you talked about our country and i think going back to the industrial revolution i think the the predominant story is we are really smart and we started really figuring it out in post enlightenment i guess but somewhere around uh, adam smith that we're really smart. We figured out how to do all this stuff and we just have improved. We have just been improving life ever since. And it's just as, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that we found this incredible store of energy that we finally figured out how to use. I guess we've been using coal in some method for, for a long time, but not just like a little bit. And then we realized how to really use it. Take away that energy and there's no industrial revolution. Yeah, we're still sailing tall ships around the world went by wind if, if we didn't have fossil fuels. And then people think, well, you know, we, we were running out of food before the green revolution. So we just figured out a new way of substituting and figured out a new way of doing it. We'll just keep figuring, we'll, you know, if we run out of lithium for batteries, we'll figure out a different chemical to use instead of lithium. Energy is not like lithium. There's no substitute. Yeah. And, you know, I sometimes look at the periodic table and I'm amazed at how compact it is how limited our choices are. It's not infinite. You know, once you're out of lithium, it's not like you can just find something better, for instance. And, and yeah, I, I think that the, the notion that, that we're, we got where we are just because we're smart, that's a part of the story. Obviously, our intelligence is, is, uh, is a factor. But I think, I think we underestimate the role that energy and fossil fuels in particular has played it's been a, a huge catalyst 
And it's fascinating to think about where we would have been without it. Of course, we can't know the answer to something like that. But I think the important thing is that until you recognize the role that it's played, the central role that it's played, you might make bad decisions about our future path if if you don't appreciate that we got where we are today by basically spinning the inheritance on this planet as fast as we could. And so I think a lot in those terms now that this is the inheritance spending phase. It's a, a giant party, but it's absolutely not sustainable. And, and it changes our perspective to the point where if we think that this is normal, we've got another thing coming. When you talk about the inheritance, one of the things I talk to a lot of business people, and I feel like business people should get some of these concepts better than anyone. I guess it hasn't been framed for them effectively. But yeah. if you have a business and you get investment, that's supposed to kickstart it. Maybe you, you, you hire some people, but eventually you got to pay people out of the revenues, yep. not out of the one-time investment at the beginning. And a business that's running its operations off of investment, it's going to go bankrupt. And living sustainably means we're not drawing down on stuff that we can't replenish. Right. And one of the new things that really, for me, has re- reshaped the way I'm, I'm uh, seeing the, the world is that actually in, in September of, 20, uh, of 2020, I went up to the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State and, and spent basically a month outdoors and found that to be really kind of a revitalizing, energizing kind of experience. And I contemplated a lot, a lot of things just out backpacking, just surrounded by nature. And, and one of those things that, that I came across was this question of, are we as a civilization in our infancy? Or are we near the end? And so obviously, we would very much like to think that we're in our infancy. So this, this is just the start. You mentioned the kickstart. You know, that's how a lot of people, I think, would see fossil fuels. Yeah, that's just what got technology rolling. And now, you know, we can do amazing things from here on out. So if we want to believe that we are in our infancy and that we have tens of thousands of years ahead of us, because civilization is about 10,000 years old since agriculture and cities began, if, if we are to be in our infancy, then we have to be thinking about really long terms. And if you look around at the kinds of things we do today, the activities and the, the resource use and, and the methods that we're using, almost nothing that we do today can last for 10,000 years. It's really amazing to look at the world this way and realize just how distorted our current time is because any long-term success will be unrecognizable by today's standards. And some people might think, well, that's just fine. Of course, you're going to see progress. But the problem is that the things that we do today are depriving the future world. We are robbing the future world of its resources and imperiling that future by by destroying ecosystems in ways that might not recover. Again, it's chewing on the power cord of the life support machine so that we're basically, most things that we do today are leading to failure. That's the way I've started thinking about it. If success means sustainability, because to to be successful in 10,000 years means that we must have figured out how to do things sustainably. There's no way around that. And so if success equals sustainability, all the unsustainable things that we're doing today promote failure, not success. And that's almost devastating to realize just how misguided we are in almost everything we do that we're, we're decreasing our chances day by day 
of an ultimate successful end. Yeah, I think when you talk about things like driving and flying and uh, how we farm and there's singing and dancing and, and spending time with the family, those don't have to go away. And I think to the extent people think the only way I can spend time with families, I have to fly across the country. That association doesn't have to be there. Right. That's a choice that we've made. And it's enabled yeah. by the profligate energy. I mean, we, we, we basically have done things because we can without thinking about whether we should or whether it's sustainable for the long term. You know, it really kind of comes down to the economic structures that we've put into place have this thing called the discount rate or sometimes opportunity cost that money in the future is worth less. It's basically devalued at, at something like the percentage uh, growth rate. And that means that the future, the far future has zero economic value. How is that not a prescription for a worthless future, right? I mean, we've built it right in that tomorrow is not worth anything. So that has encouraged us to rob from the future resources, ecosystems. And if you look at the habitat loss, it's just this monotonic hacking down of Earth's wilderness and it's hard to understand what makes us stop that. It's really hard to understand how in our current economic and political uh, institutions, we would decide that it's not worth doing. We'd have to radically change how we view the future and how we value the future. So when it comes to you know, traveling across the country to see family, that is not, you know, that has arisen because we've never really thought about what that means long-term and the fact that we can't do that long-term. We, we just, if we can do it now, we do it. And we, it, it's sort of this mindless, uh, unwitting path into something that we, we really can't sustain. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. The conversation that you and I are having now is based on the awareness of that that your book presents of of nature. Most people don't have that. I want to reinforce something we said earlier, but I want to bring it back home that this is the type of conversation you and I are having now is not about the math. But without the math, we couldn't have this conversation. It would just be about, but I do want to see my mom. She's going to get sick. What am I supposed to do? And if you don't do the math, if you don't understand, you're just going on opinion, which is nice, but it's not, nature doesn't care about our opinions. It's going to do what it does independent of us. Correct. Anyone who hasn't read your book or doesn't have some knowledge like your book is going to have a conversation that is what sounds nice, what they hope for. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think if you deprive people of the, the tools of math and science, what are we left with? We're left with history, personal experience, emotion, and those are often really great guides, right? I don't want to knock it that, that tomorrow is very likely to look just like today in the short term. And so, you know, economic theory is very successful because it's based on 
kind of recent history and how the world actually works and operates now. And that's great in its uh, own scope. But in order to peek into the future, history doesn't really help us. I mean, yeah, we have some expectation that things have happened historically, could happen again, wars and so forth. But it's really the math and science that are our most powerful tools for understanding what is and what is not possible as we go forward. I want to look at one case in particular, fission and fusion. So I go on science sites, Slashdot and Hacker News periodically. They love nuclear, whether fission or fusion, both. And they keep wanting to switch over to it because it doesn't have any carbon emissions. And they figure that we'll figure something out. If there's radioactivity, we can, we can solve that. Let's say we can. And let's say fusion can, we can get fusion to work and there's no radioactivity. That's not the end of the story. Like you're one of the few, and maybe I got it from reading your stuff before, I forget, but who doesn't just look at it as an engineering issue that with enough effort, we can solve it. There's a lot more issues of, even if we, let's say we got fusion to work. That's not the end of the story. Yeah. What then? Or to what end? Yeah. Where does that get us? What does it mean? And part of the, I think the narrative that we, we, most people subscribe to is this relentless march of progress in technology. So that I think most people just assume that Star Trek is our future. I mean, maybe they haven't really thought about it deeply, but it's just sort of, it just makes sense, right? I mean, it's just sort of an extrapolation. And I think if that's your baseline sense of where things are going, because it's not really been thought out clearly, of course, you have to go through all of the technology steps. You would never decide to leave something on the, you know, off the table. So if you want warp drive and teleportation, yeah, of course, you've got to do fusion along the way. I mean, why would you skip it? But I think if you're mentality is more calibrated by physics and math and and understanding that that space fantasy is just that it's entertainment then you don't really you're not compelled to do fusion anymore and in the end it's just the hardest way that we've ever devised to boil water it's just a thermal source it's just going to make steam that's all it can really do and we've got a lot of ways to make electricity on the renewable side. So why should we do the most expensive and most you know, elaborate plan? Is it just ego? Is it just that we want to feel proud of ourselves? Is it because we think we're heading to Star Trek? One of the things that I worry about though, and actually before I get there, I'll say that I think the main appeal is basically an unlimited fuel supply that deuterium is everywhere in just natural water in the ocean, for instance. But Sunlight is also an infinite, you know, effectively for billions of years, unlimited uh, supply in that sense that you don't run out of fuel. It's a fusion reactor that we just don't have to pay for and maintain. So safely distanced from ourselves. But I think that one of the alarming perspectives for me is if you manage to give the world fusion and if it were you know, successful enough to basically give us unlimited power, I quiver in my boots at what we would do to the environment and to other resources if we had unlimited power. Our track record is not good. That the access to fossil fuel power has spurred just an ecological devastation across the globe. What would make us different if that resource were fusion? 
I think we can't handle it, honestly. I, I'm afraid <laughs> what would happen if we were unlimited in that way. Just talking to you now, it makes me think of, um, actually, I read uh, Don't Let the Pigeon Ride the Bus or Drive the Bus. <laughs> right. And whichever, it's, it'll take you 10 seconds to read it. It's really fun. Yeah, it's fine. And it echoes a lot of the duck talks a lot like or the pigeon talks a lot like a lot of people. And which I guess is why it won all those awards. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any voices to say there's several things that in, in people's minds, we got a way out. So one of them is fusion, and uh, another is Mars, another is carbon sequestration, which you, you didn't cover that one in the book. I did not, correct. Let me just say because CO2 is not our main problem, it's a thorn. You know, we'd, we'd like to, you know, not deal with it. It's going to cause real problems. But unless we address the, the fundamentals, the growth and, and just overall resource exploitation, we're, we're, even if we got rid of all the CO2 today, it doesn't really solve the structural problems that will lead to, to ruin either way. I can't believe you just that snapping finger. I, in the conversation just before this, I did the same thing. And I'll go, I'll go further. If we not only, if I could snap my fingers and restore not just carbon dioxide to pre-industrial levels, but all pollution to pre-industrial levels, but we didn't change our values, we'd be right back here soon enough and faster than it did before because we're so much more people now. Yeah. We're still going to cut down forests to clear land for agriculture, to, for lumber. We're going to devastate, you know, habitats. We're going to, you know, chop it up to the point where it's not contiguous. So species can't you know, migrate. They don't have the ranges they need to to thrive. We're going to, you know, if we had sort of the the unlimited resources, uh, in a sense, we we would try to build more and bigger cities and use, you know, concrete and steel and just the resource use, the throughput that we demand in our current society is enormous. And energy and CO two are a part of that, but it's not the whole story. The the sort of growth basis is a prescription. It's a reverse mortgage. We basically are running a reverse mortgage scheme that's going to just blow up. It's a time bomb. A Ponzi scheme. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, things like Social Security and Medicare uh, depend on growth, not only in just the, the investment that you'll accumulate interest, but also in a growing workforce so that you can get out more than you paid in because you have a larger workforce paying in right now. And so you're basically scooping uh, stuff from that younger workforce. And as long as those things continue, you've got a social security system, but that, you know, neither of those forms of growth are, are possible to maintain indefinitely. So what happens, you know, all of those institutions are, are, are time bombs. Somewhere out there, there's someone listening saying, but that's economics. That's how it works. Something that that's I how think, it has worked. That's how it has worked. That's the key thing. Well, I want to add to that, that, that um, this would be, I think, outside the scope of your book, but something that's in my book, I think you'll really like my book, is that there have also been plenty of cases, and I just bring up two of them in my book that I center on, where societies have lived for centuries, even, I mean, hundreds of thousands of years without that growth. And they were with greater scores on health, longevity, uh, equality, stability than we've had. It's not, there's a lot of things that people think are properties of humans that are really properties of a particular economic system that we've chosen, but not all humans have chosen that. And the other ones have outperformed us. I mean, they haven't outperformed us in terms of power or taking over, I mean, but they've outperformed us in, the, in, in measures of 
health, prosperity, or abundance. Right, but not in ecosystem destruction. We, we really are number one there. Yeah. So the, these outlets that people have, maybe we'll escape to Mars. Maybe we'll escape to, or maybe we'll get fusion. That'll solve everything. They think we'll get fusion and then we'll just live the way we are now, but none of the problems of fossil fuels. I never thought of like physicists making the case of shutting down ITER. I don't know how to pronounce it. ITER? ITER? Yeah, I think ITER. But of saying like it might be very interesting from a scientific and engineering perspective to make this happen. It could be one of the great achievements of human endeavor. And it might really just the existence of it might be psychologically condemning us, bring us to a place where we I never thought about it. like physicists who get it, if I'm not being too pompous to say I get it in this area, to say, let's shut it down. Have you thought about that? I hadn't thought about it before. Well, so I have mixed feelings. I mean, I, I know people personally who work on that mm. area of research, and I value scientific understanding. And so to some degree, what we learn about plasma physics and turbulence and those kinds of things, I think are interesting just in their own right. But I have had the thought that if the funding that is currently going to ITER went into sort of storage technologies, then we'd have a solar uh, solution that I compare the fact that I can't buy a fusion reactor today. Nobody can, but I can buy on my own personal funds, a solar energy generating system with storage. So it's already light years ahead of fusion. And, and that would be, I think a much better way to spend the money, but you know, in terms of pure research, I don't want to, I don't want to advocate shutting anything down that is expanding our knowledge. That's just sort of maybe part of my ingrained scientist. It might not make the most sense. Even, you know, some knowledge isn't that useful for a successful future, right? I mean, it might just be another piece that leads us toward failure. So I I haven't really sorted that out. It is an easy place to get mixed on, although I haven't really thought about promoting, yeah, shutting down, maybe putting that into, you mentioned solar. And most people look at the demand side or the supply side. How can we get more energy? Not how can we use less? You talk about it. You don't talk a lot about, you don't do the numbers on, but you talk about consuming less and, and using less power. And another place where I would put it, I don't know if this is quite science, but into how to promote behaviors of stewardship and sustainability, which would be more a social science type thing. It, it wouldn't be science, it, it would be leadership of leading people to look at acting in stewardship as something to embrace, something to expect leading a better life. And I think now they think, I think the prevailing view is if we don't keep increasing the GDP, people lose their jobs. We won't be able to maintain the infrastructure. The hospitals will close. Mothers will die in childbirth. 40 would be old age again. Josh, do you want to go back to the Stone Age? Is that really what you want? Because that's what you're talking about. And that's not necessary. That, that's like this, this by uh, black and white view that... Right. I think. The idea that we would, you know, change our course is a threatening idea because there's a lot of uncertainty that comes along with it. And so it's very easy to just run to the far extreme in terms of what that might mean. But think of think about it this way in terms of say job loss. Are most of the jobs today promoting success or promoting failure? If they're not enhancing ecosystems or or stabilizing or, or protecting ecosystems they're actually probably promoting failure. So many of the jobs today are part of the economic treadmill that we're kind of enslaved to right now. And 
it's not really necessary. So I think it's possible that, or, or it's appealing to me at least to think that in a more steady economic system, we wouldn't need to work more than 10 hours a week or something like that to satisfy our basic requirements and, and have happy lives. You know, we're not going to be jet setting around the world. There are things that we would not be able to do that we might enjoy today. But if that enjoyment comes at the expense of a, a sunk future and the suffering of billions, is it really justifiable? So yes, the future that I think could work is less uh, cushy than what we have today. But I don't think it has to be any less enjoyable. In fact, it might be more enjoyable because you're more closely connected to, you know, nature and and uh, your own livelihood and, and how to live and survive in the seasons. And you're just more connected to the world and community. And so there are a lot of benefits from living more simply. So I guess from the point of view that much of what we do today is in some ways pointless, I don't mind shedding a lot of that. And if you lose jobs, but it still means that you're able to, you know, work less and still be happy, that seems like a fine trade-off. You have more leisure time. You have more time to to read or walk in nature and, and uh, you know, go swimming or whatever. You know, you just have a more, uh, maybe a richer life in many ways. And I'm not talking about abandoning technology. That's why I would kind of like to, I would like to preserve science and preserve our knowledge. And to some extent that requires the preservation of some, you know, technological uh, base and something like solar power could provide that kind of natural flow of energy that we just tap into. So I haven't obviously worked out how the future, you know, might work. I, I would like to spend my remaining years thinking about that, but I can say what doesn't work. And that's important to be able to identify present modes that just simply don't pencil out and can't work. That's an important first step. And, and most of what we do today doesn't pencil out. Yeah. You have a, I think a bullet point list at the end of like what, what we can't do. So it's not going to be using fossil fuels. It's not going to be uh, decreasing forest size. Now, if you take those things away, then it becomes a creative, constructive activity to create a life. Most people think of it as a deprivation, sacrificial step to like, what, what else do I have to give up? But people lived without most of those things for almost all of human history. And I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy day to day, but there's a lot of unhappiness today that, I mean, we're not living the best we can right now. And so when I said earlier, like when people say, oh, you're so extreme, and I think I'm extre- extremely fun. To me, the shift is like when I, when I was younger, I used to go party all the time. And if someone said to me, you know, in the future, you're going to go out instead of partying all night, you're going to go to a, a farm and, and dig carrots out of the ground. And you're going to like that more. I'd be like, are you crazy? This is much more fun. And mm-hmm. now I wish I'd changed earlier, but even that change is smaller than I'm not a father, but I've been asking parents lately, what's the longest you've spent after you were aware that your baby needed its diaper changed, what's the longest you waited between hearing the diaper needed changing and you acted? And it's never been more than seconds. And they talk about me like what I'm doing is a big deal, but it's like nothing compared to the responsibility that, that they've taken on. And presume, and for that matter, I don't have a pet. So if you have a dog or cat or fish, you've probably done more work and spent more money and time 
than I have on all my stuff. And I can't compare the level of reward, but I can tell you that this is rewarding and not like I'm putting lipstick on a pig. Like, yeah, it really sucks. But actually there's, it's like deeply rewarding. I and mean, we, you were talking about with the, the nature, I can't describe like how great it is and how it keeps hitting me that for all of human history until the past couple generations, you couldn't live without having access to walking among the trees. Almost you had to. And when you ask people what they value, they very rarely will say oxygen. Mm-hmm. Put them underwater and suddenly like, oh yeah, that one's really important. And no one says trees, but do you know what? There are all these, with urbanization, people are moving into cities and there's all these slums that we all know about in New Delhi and lots of, like all over. There are people who are living without access to the, the raw, the, the basic parts of, of, I think what we would consider civilized life through no fault of their own. Do you know how many live in, in shanty towns and favelas? 1.6 billion is what I have come across. Oh, yeah, I would have guessed a billion, but that's, yeah, it's a lot. And that is not an unintended side effect of our system. I mean, it is, but it's in, in that no one meant for that to happen. But it's also a necessary product of our system. It's not like we can just fix that part and everything else stays the same. Right. I mean, the sad fact is that the real challenge, the confrontation here, the conflict is between our resource demands and what the natural world can supply. And if we brought those 1.6 billion people up to a standard of living that, that we enjoy, it's not clear that the earth can support it. And so we can't just write down what we want to be true. As you said, nature doesn't care. It can only support so much. And so, but one thing I would say about this could easily be misinterpreted, but the kids who grow up in those conditions don't know any different. They don't know that there are, while they're still kids, before they develop another perspective. And I can guarantee you those kids laugh. I mean, I'm not trying to paint a picture that oh, it's all great in the, in the slums. Uh, that is, is not what I'm trying to say. But what I am trying to say is that as we transition, if we do have to tone down our current resource demands, as I suspect, uh, strongly suspect we will, it's hardest on those of us today who live in a high supply kind of uh, world because we know what we're, quote, giving up. But kids born 100 years from now, for instance, aren't going to miss any of the stuff that we maybe had to give up because that's just how life is. And, and it's, it's normal. So that one of the great things about the human animal is that we are ex- extremely adaptable. And I think within a few generations, we can adapt to a lifestyle that those of us today might find repulsive in some ways, but only because we've got these skewed uh, distorted views that have been, you know, hyped up by by fossil fuels. We're kind of on a sugar high. We're kind of the the bratty kid throwing tantrums. You know, why would we want to be like that? But that's kind of what we've become. We've become real princesses. We we demand thermal control in our environments to you know within a few degrees. Otherwise, we complain. That's our problem. That's an attitude problem that doesn't serve us very well and doesn't serve the planet very well. So I think if I think about, you know, several generations down the line, you know, disconnected from, from what we experience today, if we are in a, 
less resource-rich environment uh, going forward, I think you're going to find a lot of resilience in humanity because kids form their own view of what normal is. And it's, it's our problem. I'll say again, it's, it's our own attitudes that distorted our views so, so severely. You talked about how we might consider how the future would live is, I forget if you said repulsive or repugnant. I think future generations won't just look back at us and say like, they won't say, oh, I missed that I could fly all around the world and see Machu Picchu whenever I wanted. They're going to look at us the way we look at, you know, when I was a kid, my high school principal, he smoked a pipe, a tobacco pipe all throughout the school. And that was okay, I guess. I think it would be more like, I think they'll look back at us as if we're like surgeons smoking while performing open heart surgery. That's going to be, what were you thinking? Yeah. That's going to be a good question. How did you take so long after you realized what plastic was doing to do something about it? How come after you knew you kept using it and just saying, but it's convenient, but there's a pandemic. What else am I supposed to do except the plastic coffee cup when I go to Starbucks? What else can I possibly do? And I think they will look back and think, are you joking? Like that's, that's your excuse. They're going to say, why were you at Starbucks? Yeah. <laughs> what they're going to say. Well, and another perspective that I think is, you know, in terms of our valuation and, and whether we value nature or not and how kind of disconnected we are, I did a calculation recently that indicated that all the animals on the planet, fish and insects and mammals, humans, the whole birds, everything, it's about the same as the, the mass of gold under the crust and under land within five kilometers. And so roughly equal mass. And if I asked you, which could the earth survive without if you had to give you know somebody a choice do you do we keep all the animals or do we keep all the gold when we say the earth i think you mean like the biosphere not like not the rock going around the sun right but yeah the, the living the living and thriving uh ecosystem on, on earth would utterly collapse without animals right They're, they perform services for the plants and the plants would not survive and humans could not survive if all the animals were gone mm -hmm. so obviously the animals are worth more than the gold to us. And we just, our financial system and economic valuation system is so misguided on those kinds of things that we don't put that kind of monetary value on nature. And it's a giant oversight. So I think that's another thing that future generations will look back and say, hey, you had this crazy discount rate to make the future worthless. Thanks for that. And they'll say, you know, B, you really failed to value the planet that you live on and its natural ecosystems. And until we treat nature better than we treat ourselves, I think we're going to lose the game. We need to understand that it's a partnership. We're not the, you know, we might be dominant in terms of intelligence, but we need to actually play a subservient role and not put ourselves first and only think of ourselves because that kind of bratty behavior will not be rewarded by nature because it, it'll just basically, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll foul our own uh, keep uh, in, in that um, by, by pursuing that kind of attitude. Yeah. The word you say bratty, I usually use the word entitled mm -hmm. without just unjustifiably entitled and no one who's spoiled thinks I'm spoiled. I love it. There, it takes a, a self-awareness and something coming in from the outside to, to, otherwise you just feel like, well, why should someone say no to me? My parents never did. Mm -hmm. But I think entitled is a good word for it, spoiled, ratty. And, you know, I don't want to make people 
feel bad uh, because we are just people and we're reacting to our circumstances. And in some ways, it's just a, you know, almost a, a tragedy that that's how we, we are constructed. But the hope is that we can actually install, I think of it as a software layer on top of our more primitive hardware that prevents or, you know, catches those attitudes and recognizes the damage that they can cause to ourselves in the end. And, uh, you know, sort of develop a, a wisdom layer on top of our just impulses to, to ask, why would we do this uh, thing? Not, and, and it shouldn't just be because we can and we have the technology. I would like to see this kind of layer that considers the very long-term impacts well after we're, we're gone. I don't know if we're capable of that. I think intellectually we're capable of that, but it's a tough uh, climb to get to that point. Yeah. If someone is spoiled, then the prospect of being told no sounds like it's a negative. It is literally negative. Yeah. And so doesn't that make life worse? And I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is in some way spoiled in ways that they don't recognize. But when we're with someone else yet more spoiled, I think we recognize that if they get told no every now and then, if they, if they don't get anything they want, whenever they want, however they want it, no matter what consequence to anyone else, I'm a bit spoiled. I admit it compared to many people in the world, but I know people who are more spoiled than me. And I think we all know this, that if we know someone who's spoiled or entitled, that if they get a bit more structure and they don't get anything they want, whenever they want, however they want it, no matter what the consequences to others, that it will improve their life. Though they don't, they wouldn't think that. And that's us. I think that the constraints of nature, they're not actually constraints in the sense of like, it's going to make you unhappy. You might not get to do some certain physical things, but the emotional reward and the connection we make with each other in nature, I think will be greater. It's not, I think will be greater. It will be greater. Yeah. I think the tricky part that I can't quite understand how it's going to play out is that in order to be successful long-term, we basically have to restrain ourselves and not plunder every available resource. We need to set large sections of the planet as sort of off limits and, you know, lots of, of goodies remain there. And we have to have generation after generation uh, effective stewardship of those resources and, and those uh, ecosystems. And we don't have a precedent for that. I don't know that people are capable of thinking about many generations ahead and wanting life to be as good for those generations as, as it is for us. Uh, that, that's kind of what it takes is this very long-term view. And I think as long as we are, are stuck as we seem to be now in short-term thinking, that's just a bad prescription so that you can be selfish because the, the negative consequences of your selfishness uh, that might play out over you know decades and centuries. If you can completely discount that, ignore it, then then of course you're going to act in that selfish way. Uh, so I, I don't know how to how to get around that really difficult barrier. When you talk about thinking long term, I think of you may probably know the brand Seventh Generation. That I think it comes from a Native American idea that some culture that says uh, we think seven generations down the line. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference in what you're saying. It's not just a different cultural idea. I mean, maybe for them, they figured out through, I don't know how that came to be. I don't really know what I'm talking about here. It's just, I know an idea of where it comes from. And it may have come through an effective scientific method over time, but you're not talking about like, let's try a different culture or maybe, maybe that sounds nice. You're like, this is 
to the extent people are really into Western science, technology, and so forth, this, when we analyze it, this is where it leads. It's not like an opinion and quantifying it. It's not just quanti- quantifying says numbers, but the math, math is more about patterns to me than, than numbers. And it's not like, hey, this would be nice. Right. And I think once, once you do think in this sort of 10,000 year time frame, it radically changes how we should be approaching this planet. And some people have pointed out, so I'm a physicist and I, I don't know much, you know, I haven't taken uh, many courses or had much exposure to uh, social sciences or humanities. But sometimes when I do use words like should, people point out that now I'm making a moral argument. And I've started to embrace that because I think, I think that's kind of what we need to be doing. We need to be putting this. So, so the math and science itself, you know, tries to almost purposefully be, you know, message free or, or judgment free, or, you know, it's, it's just the facts. And that's what I think kind of coming back to the textbook, that's part of the problem that I had with it is the only reason that we should be studying this business. And there I use the word should again, is that it has implications and, and some of the choices that we're making now will unleash a devastation and suffering in future generations that really we bear responsibility for. And are we okay with that? Are we okay? And, and this is part of why it becomes very personal to me when I see behaviors that are, are damaging is I get a little bit impatient sometimes with people. And it's because I am living in my head the experience of of what their actions mean to future generations and the suffering and the starvation and you know all the damage that's going to come so it's that is just an abhorrent uh vision of what this all leads to if we're not paying attention and it's unfair to the person that i'm becoming impatient with because they haven't shared that perspective they're innocent of it and, and yeah, they're innocent. And, and at some level, you know, I have to admit that just because I have that perspective doesn't mean that it's right. And I reevaluate that all the time. And, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, sort of chasing the wrong vision. But every time I look at this, I, I keep coming back to in every evaluation I do, I can't get away from some, some of these fundamentals. So that the you know ten thousand year perspective, for instance, has has radically changed the way I, I think about what we should be doing. And I recognize that for most people on the planet, they might say, "Who cares? That is so long; it's not worth anything to me." But you know that that comes down to I guess how much do you care about human civilization? Maybe I care too much about it. Maybe I shouldn't care about it. Maybe a lot of people don't care about it. But if you want to think in terms of, of maintaining human civilization, you really have to think on such timescales. And then, then everything changes in terms of what's, what's valuable. I want to bring you to the here and now and maybe wrap up with this. Of what you're doing, I mean, we were talking about super long timescales, but what about you with the book? Are you promoting it? Are you trying to get it out there? Are you on a, going on a tour? Or what's next for you in the here and now? So I'm not a very good promoter. Uh, I haven't really done too much in in the way of, of trying to get word out about the book. I have talked about it on my blog and it has enough of a readership that, you know, pe- people are seeing it, but honestly, this is the kind of book that I feel uh would be beneficial for millions to see, you know, because it's I think it's 
comprehensible to really wide, you know, population, broad population, and also important. Uh, I think it would be resonant. I think it would be, uh, you know, valued by by a very large number of people. And the fact that it's free means that, you know, I've, I've removed that barrier to access. And uh, I am actually working on an idea to make some video shorts, some animations that parallel the book to basically tell the whole story, the arc of the book in a manner that is uh, non-technical, but pulls out the, the main lessons. And I want it to be something like the story of stuff. I was going to say the story of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So something, you know, comparable length, something with 20 to 24 minutes and six different segments. And so that, that is something I'm working on now. And if that is successful and that's a format that I think people would be more willing to digest, right? A textbook. Why would you, if you're just out working in the world, why would you burden yourself with a textbook? Um, now I think, and as you've said, it, it's a fairly readable uh, experience. It doesn't have to be thought of as a textbook. It doubles as just a, a book, but you know, a series of videos that's, that's much more digestible might lead a lot more people to want to know more about what, what's behind the statements in something like this, this video series. I would love to see it and I'd love to promote it. It sounds like the book has recently come out. You're getting a lot of feedback from your readers. It sounds like it's all positive. And I suspect that you're going to be talking a lot more with people as time goes on. I'd love to have you back to talk more about it after you've talked to more people, got more feedback and seen how it's going on in the world. If videos come out, well, I imagine videos would take a lot longer. Yeah, I don't know. The, you know, I, <laughs> I'm hoping, hoping not too long. I'm hoping, you know, certainly within a year. But yeah, it, it's going to take certainly months. And I hope you'll you'll come back again and share more as you've developed interaction as you've interacted more with the world. Yeah, I'd love to. Is there anything I didn't think to ask, or something worth bringing up before closing? No, I think you know we covered a lot of ground. If you ask me to write down all the things that we talked about. Uh, after the fact, I'm not sure that I could capture it all because we went in many different uh, directions, but nothing jumps out as, as uh, you know, a, a glaring omission that, that would need to be said. Well, Tom, thank you both for coming here and, and sharing and, and for the time and effort that went into the book and, and bring that book out. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you've enjoyed it and I hope uh, many others can as well. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.